Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. I've chosen to carry some things forward from my father, for example, that I think were real positives. Uh, and I've left behind the things that weren't. Like, he was the hardest working guy I ever met. I'm serious. If the guy, if he wasn't drinking, there, there's no hill he wouldn't climb. I mean, he was a hard, hard worker. Um, and I got a real good work ethic from him. Um, he, he just, um, he instilled that in me. Uh, then I saw the drinking and I haven't had a drink since high school. I just don't drink. I've seen what it can do and I don't like it. So I left that behind. You have a choice about what part of the legacy you carry on and what part you leave behind. All right. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I'm so excited. My guest today, I want to tell you a little about him. It's going to probably go on a little longer, this introduction, than normal because this guy has credits that are like war and peace. But most importantly, he's the most well-known mental health professional in the world. He's been the leader in daytime talk for much of the past 12 years number two behind Oprah since its inception, and number one for the past three years. His show is incredibly educational. It's inspiring. He's been recognized by the American Psychological Association and was honored with a presidential citation for the work that he's done. He's received 26 Emmy Award nominations, won five PRISM Awards, as well as the MAD Media Award, and he's won the Gracie Award, been honored for that four times. He has done over 2,000 hours of television, which is almost unprecedented. He's the author of seven number one New York Times bestselling books that have been published in 39 languages in over 33 million copies in print. So please welcome, if you will, my guest. I'm so excited. Dr. Phil McGraw. What's up, man? <laughs> yeah. My dad always said the more you've done in your life, the shorter your introduction should be. So I'm apparently a punk. <laughs> 
She's been talking about me for 30 minutes. I'm apparently a punk. <laughs> I remember you saying something to me about one thing your father said. We were taking a television meeting, and you took this great meeting, and you spoke in this particular meeting so infrequently, but when you spoke, the things you said were just so powerful. It was like these pinpoint jabs of Muhammad Ali. And I got outside and I said, and that meeting was so odd. You really didn't say much, but it was really valuable. And you said, my dad always had an expression. He said something to the effect of never miss an important opportunity to shut the fuck up. That's it. <laughs> yeah. He reminded me of that on a regular basis, as a matter of fact. <laughs> so I like to start at the beginning. So where you grew up and what happened, everybody starts at zero, zero. The one thing I like to say all the time as a person, what's fascinating to sit across from you, you've controlled your own destiny. And all through your career, which we'll talk about, you created companies or things where you were in control and the control about everybody else around you was sort of left behind. But when you start, you're born into a family as you interview so many people on your show. They don't have a choice of who their mother and father is, where they grow up, and they started zero zero. So tell me about where you started, where you were, what happened, and what was the first thing that happened that let you know that you would be successful in business? Well, it was a dark and stormy night. <laughs> I was born in a log cabin in the middle of nowhere, right? <laughs> Walked uphill to school both ways, was uphill. Uh, no, I was, you know... I. I was uh, one of four kids. I have three sisters, and um, my mom and dad were beyond blue collar. I mean, that was their goal in life would be to ever uh, get up to middle class or blue collar. Uh, but, uh, you know, we always had a roof over our head. We always had uh, food to eat. And um, being the only boy... Um, I kind of had a probably different experience going through than my sisters did. Uh, but, you know, my dad was um, a, a football coach. And, in fact, the first time he ever had a job as head football coach, it was Venita, Oklahoma. And kickoff was at 730 and I was born at 7.15 and disrupted his first ever game <laughs> as head football coach. Um, Did he resent you forever after that? I, I, he's, I don't think he ever forgave me for it. Uh, I don't know where they won or lost the game, but I, I was born. And uh, uh, he was a coach at the time. And then, you know, we moved around a lot, actually. I, it was almost like a military rhythm. Um, I went to first, second, and third grade in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and fourth, fifth, and sixth in Denver, and seven, eight, nine in Oklahoma City, and 10, 11, 12 in Kansas. So it's like every three years we moved. So I was always kind of the new kid. Again, these control things, you're in a situation where you're a kid, and your parents just come to you and say, we're moving. You're like, well, I like to stay here. I'm sorry, we're moving. So again... There's no control over your life at that point. Yeah. And so I think that has a lot in shaping somebody to want to take that point in their life where they go to the next point. It, it, it really, you know, when you're the new kid, you don't, you don't have those longstanding relationships in that peer group. And um, I know at there was a point after my freshman year uh, when – my dad had gone back and actually gone to school to become a psychologist. And um, 
we he had to go to Kansas City to do his internship at Kansas City General. And he was just going to go by himself for the year and do that. But I had um, gotten in a little trouble in one thing and another in, in that last year. And he thought, you know, you need to be with your father, not down here with all these women. So he and I um, went to Kansas City. And um, that was kind of a defining move for me because – we went to Kansas City, but nowhere in particular in Kansas City. Um, we had nowhere to live. We had nowhere to stay. We had. Um, so where were you living? Well, um, when we first got there, he was he registered in and then was gone uh, from there. I think he had to go back to the university and finish something. And f- that was in the summer before I started my sophomore year. And I, I was homeless at that time. I mean, I was just living on the street. And then we finally got the money to get a room at the Y, at the YMCA in Kansas City. And I don't even think it's still there, but it was downtown Kansas City. And it was like five bucks for the week. Of course, this was in like 65. It was five bucks for the week. And uh, so we stayed there. Uh, for a while, and then finally, we got an apartment right before school started, um, just a one-bedroom apartment. And uh, but we didn't have money for de- deposits, so we had no utilities. So we had no electricity, and it gets dark at like four thirty. Uh, so that made for some long night. No television, no radio, no lights, no nothing. Uh, and then it got pretty cold in Kansas City uh, as we moved on. But it took about three months. We finally scraped up the money for deposits for electricity, so we were able to get the electricity turned. What were you doing while he was doing this stuff? Well, you know, I, I started school, uh, you know, high school as a sophomore, uh-huh. and uh, we got an apartment right near the high school, so I was able to to walk to school. Now, I think if I'm not mistaken, now I'm trying to figure out how you did this because I believe. As a teenager, you had an interest in flying planes. Didn't you get a pilot's license while you were a teenager? I did. I got it very early on. Uh, How did you do that? Well, when he finished his internship, then he was able to get a job, like a real job as a doctor in a practice. And uh, he worked for a psychiatrist up there. So things changed dramatically once he got through with all that and could get a job. He went from like 300 a month to making $25,000 a year, which back then was not that bad. And so then I was able to, you know, do some things that I, I, it was a big difference from just a few years before. What's interesting is you're following him, the rest of your family's back where they were, and you're essentially, like you said, homeless. But then when your first goals that meant something to you was flying a plane. Yeah, well, he was a pilot, and uh, you know, after he got through with his coaching stint, he was um, uh, he was a tool pusher in the oil business, where he'd sell bits, drill bits, and stuff. And when we lived in Denver, 
uh, all the drilling that was going on in the Rocky Mountains, if a drill bit would break, you had to get one up there right quick. And that was his job. And he was a pilot, and he would fly these drill bits into these drilling sites up in the Rocky Mountains. And I would go with him a lot. And were they small planes? Or oh, yeah. You know, small single-engine airplanes. So I started flying with him. And, you know, by the time I was 10 or 11, I was pretty good behind the wheel. I never flew by myself, but always with him. But, but when you were 10, he allowed you to get in the cockpit and fly the plane. Sure. Well, but with him right there, you know, I, but I made some flights where he never touched the controls. He just talked me through it after a while. So it was in my blood from very early on. Now, thinking back when your sons were 10, would you allow them to fly a plane with you in the cockpit? Yes. Uh-huh. Jay... Uh, got his pilot's license his junior year in high school uh, as well. So he's a pilot, and uh, he doesn't, you know, neither one of us fly much anymore, but we've done it a lot. That's amazing. So, okay, now your father's doing a little bit better, but you're still living a humble existence. What's the next step where you feel like you want to become more of an entrepreneur or do something that where you're more in, in charge of things? Well, you know, I've always kind of figured a way – to just get along on on your own. And, you know, my dad was a bad alcoholic. And when he was drinking, you, you get very self-reliant. I mean, you just depend on yourself to take care of things. And so I never really had much in the way of jobs after my teen years. You know, I threw a paper route and stuff like that. I was a car hop at A&W Root Beer Stand. <laughs> Um, until they put everybody on skates. And <laughs> I have the worst balance of anybody I've ever met. I have to concentrate to sit here on this couch right now without falling over. But you're a great athlete. You play but tennis every balance. day. Yes, that's true, but not balance. Um, I remember in high school one day we were doing trampoline and gym. We had to, like, turn a flip. I said, you can send me to the office. It'll make me run a mile, do whatever you want. But I'm not breaking my neck for some idiot gym teacher. I know what I cannot do, and I cannot do that, so I didn't do it. But um, so you know that was that was never my long suit. But um, I, I always just kind of figured a way uh, to do something entrepreneurial after high school. Uh, I never really had a job. I was always doing some kind of business, some way, somewhere. And uh, I liked that better. In other words, your own business, whatever right. it was, mowing lawns or right. whatever, whatever it was, you was. did your own thing. Yeah. And here you're also obviously an adult child of alcoholic parent. And you're in that situation, which is brutal because, again, normally there's a tendency for a child to either drink and follow the path. Like I said, you're a pilot. Your son's doing pilot stuff. Normally, parent drinks, and a lot of times, it's in the genes. Was it in your genes? Well, you know, I, I, I think for some reason, I think people are either psychologically minded or they're not. I mean, it's just like some people have an eye for fashion or decor or something like that, and some people don't. Um, you know, my wife can walk in and look at a room and... She can have it looking like a million bucks in no time at all. And to me, it's just, I don't know, it's just a room. I don't <laughs> see it. And I think it's the same way psychologically. And for some reason, I think I've always been psychologically minded. And I, I know at the time I was going through that, 
I, you know, I didn't, at the time you don't think, boy, do I have a bad deal here? It just, it's all, you know, that anonymous poem, children learn what they live is true. Uh, I never thought I had a particularly bad deal or whatever. I just, I knew that it was different because like I, I wouldn't bring friends home because you never know what you're going to find when you open that door. And so given that, I, I was different in that I would go to other people's houses and it didn't appear chaotic <laughs> at my house. It was chaotic and you never knew if he was going to be sober or drunk and if the lights were going to be on or not on or what, you know, you just never know. So uh, I knew it was different in that regard, but you know, you just, you, you, you get along. It's, it's, um, it's, I never took it personally. Uh, I just knew he had a problem with that and it just is, this was what it was, you know, you just deal with it and go on. Did you ever utilize any of the skill set you have now that came naturally to you with him and ever have a sit down with him at any moment of a solemn moment and say something that you might say to somebody today? Well, I, in two ways, it's impacted me su- significantly. I'm very results oriented. And when I talk to people, I, I look, let's change what you're doing so we can change the outcomes. And I just think common sense isn't common enough anymore. And that's the approach I take. And you, know, you get that when you're poor. When you grow up poor, you're very results oriented. You always know if somebody's been poor, you know, you think poor people say you don't work, you don't eat. That person's never really been poor. <laughs> because a poor person would say, if you don't work and get paid today, you don't eat today. <laughs> like if you work and get paid in two weeks, you won't be here in two weeks. <laughs> you got to get paid today. I'm results oriented. You 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 push A, you get B. You push C, you get D. And there is a direct connection between the choices you make and the consequences you get. And I learned that very early on uh, because this stuff about do you get an allowance? <laughs> yeah, you get an allowance. No, you go work and bring money home so you can put it in the kitty because collectively then we have a place to stay and we have a place to eat. So I became very results oriented and that affects who I am today. I'm very results oriented. I, I totally get that. Um, so, you know, I, I think part of that, uh, is that, and then, I, you know, I, I am a strong believer that we create our own experience. You know, you can, you can be a victim or not, but you create your own experience. And, um, it's interesting though, you started off, you were a victim. And then you became somebody who wasn't the victim. Yeah, and I never really felt like a victim. You know, because like I say, at the time, you don't know. You don't know that it's any better or worse or different than anybody else. No, but looking back now, you know. Mm-hmm. Looking back now. Um, but I, I think you have a choice. You can, you know, that's that's the choice of legacy. I've chosen to carry some things forward from my father, for example, that I think were real positives. Uh, and I've left behind the things that weren't. Like, he was the hardest working guy I ever met. I'm serious. If the guy, if he wasn't drinking, there, there's no hill he wouldn't climb. I mean, he was a hard, hard worker. Um, 
and I got a real good work ethic from him. Um, he he just um, he instilled that in me. Uh, then I saw the drinking, and I haven't had a drink since high school. I just don't drink. I, I've seen what it can do, and I don't like it, so I left that behind. You have a choice about what part of the legacy you carry on and what part you leave behind, and and I and I still preach that today. I mean, I'm probably genetically predisposed to alcoholism because of him. There's no probably. I am. I mean, we we know that research wise, and I've been real careful with my boys because sometimes. It's like if my father is an alcoholic, so I choose not to drink, then they never see what it can do, and they're genetically predisposed to have the problem. So I've had to specifically tell them, you don't see the danger because you don't see me drink. But let me tell you, you are set up genetically to have a problem. Don't fall in that trap. So, I mean, I've had to point that out because there's been a generational skip there uh, in terms of doing that. So... I was at a party the other day with my kids, and I'm not a big drinker. My kids have never really seen me have a drink. And I went to the table where the bar area was, and there was just a cold beer like in the ice. I took it out, and before it hit the table, my eight-year-old and nine-year-old ran over and grabbed the beer out and threw it in the trash and said, Daddy... Don't do it. (laughs) And it made me feel good because I felt that hopefully that'll last for the next time. Both of my boys drink, I can tell you. (laughs) They're unafflicted by the teetotaler gene. Both of them drink. Not to excess, but they certainly uh, know how to party. Hey, everybody. I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am. If you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet, then you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business. That's why I'm offering you my Blueprint for Success, a -a one-of-a-kind all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry. I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to barrycats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. Hey, everybody. I've talked a lot about AquaTrue on this show, the amazing water purification system that's literally a miniature water cooler in your home that purifies the water in a way that no one else has ever figured out how to do. It's this incredibly efficient piece of equipment, and it gives you the best tasting water you can ever imagine for pennies. You just take it out of the box, plug it in, put your tap water in it, and it takes out all the bad chemicals and gives you the best and healthiest water you can ever imagine, saving you thousands of dollars each year from buying bottled water in the store. I have one at my house and office, and everyone who uses it orders one, and you should too. Just go to industrystandardwater.com and type in the promo code Barry, and if you act now, you can get $100 off and start enjoying the best 
and most cost-effective water you've ever had and never waste another dollar buying bottled water again. I just want to share another groundbreaking product with you. It's a revolutionary air purifier that will change the way your home operates. And I'm talking about the air doctor. The air inside our home can be up to a hundred times more polluted than the air outside. But with the air doctor, you don't have to worry about it as it removes dust, pet hair, mold, pollen, flu viruses, and so many other contaminants that circulate throughout our homes. Till now, the only thing that could come close to this product were systems that cost thousands of dollars. But now you can get the Air Doctor for a fraction of the cost, normally $600. And if you don't believe me, check Amazon. But for a limited time, I can give you 50% off and save you $300. Just go to airdoctorpro.com, type in the promo code Barry, and get rid of all the bad toxins in your home. I'm telling you, I have this product. It really, really works. So get one now and start breathing the cleanest and healthiest air you can ever imagine. What business did you start getting into where you realized that I'm never looking back, I'm never going to be homeless, I'm never not going to have money in my pocket, and I'm never going to have to be beholden to anybody else? Well, you know, I knew that really early on because there was a lot of chaos in my home. My mother didn't much cotton to his drinking, and so there was a lot of conflict in that regard. And like I said, I had three sisters, and they were they were wild. I mean, I think both of them got married at 14 for the first time. I mean, it's just a chaos after chaos. And so I started becoming, you know, kind of dependent, self self reliant very early on. Um, I remember asking my little sister one time, do you suppose it's possible we got mixed up at the hospital? (laughs) These people are like, they're 14 and getting married. And I, I, what? what? Was that part of the reason why your dad wanted you to come with him? Because if your sisters were marrying at 14, that might mean that you might think, hey, it's okay to go out with 14-year-olds and hang out with 14-year-old girls. And so is that why they sent you there? Because they thought they could save you and that they couldn't save them? No, I think he was trying to save them from my influence (laughs) (laughs) by that point because I was uh, getting a little rowdy, so I can't blame that on them. But, um, you know, one thing that I always believed is that knowledge is power and I so I I always saw the value of education and again that's something my dad went back to school after a long time and um, so I saw the value of education and so I really threw myself into that I didn't like school but it was a means to an end for me what was the first thought that came into your mind? Like, hey, well, yeah, I'd I like to do this. I couldn't decide whether I wanted to go to medical school, law school, or into psychology. And I, we had a good friend that was a physician, and I spent some time uh, with him at his office a couple of days and immediately decided I don't want to do this. I mean, it just seemed to me like highly repetitive, and everybody was sick, and I just thought, oh, my God, this would just be horrible. And so I didn't want to do that. Um, I thought about law school, and 
all and was really pulled into that. Um, but then uh, what I wound up doing, which I really, really enjoyed, is I went the psychology route, but then I started a company uh, called Courtroom Sciences, Inc., CSI, before there was a CSI. Thanks. And that was kind of the marriage of the two. That was psychology and the law. So for oh. over 12 years, I just practically lived in a courtroom. But where did the idea come from of this new kind of concept for an, a profession? There weren't companies like this. Where did you no. come up with the blueprint for this idea? There, there was some of that going on, but not a whole lot. Um when when you go to school in psychology, you, you declare majors and stuff just like anything else, and mine was clinical, and then I also did behavioral medicine. So I kind of did two cores side by side. Um, and my specialty within that was brain and central nervous system. And, you know, if, if somebody gets injured and they break a hip or an arm, you know, it's $50,000 in damages, you pay them and you go on. If somebody gets a brain injury... You're now talking a life plan. It can be millions of dollars. So they start hiring experts to testify at trial. And so I spent a lot of time testifying as an expert um, in cases where, you know, people would be injured and that sort of thing. Um, and because I was a pilot, I had an interest in aviation law. And so several years at CSI, I worked on major airline crashes throughout the country. Uh, I think the first one I did was Air Florida, uh, which was back in 1981 when they hit the 13th Street Bridge in Washington, D.C., coming out of there. Um, and then I've worked on many, many since then, you know, Delta. What is it you're trying to do? Because obviously, again, you created your own company. You were the guy who owned the company. It was you, and you gained the experience through time that they would come to you because of obviously the great work you did in the beginning. So well, it started out where I was testifying, but then the lawyers would say, you know, you did a really good job testifying. They're going to have an expert to counter you on the other side. Can you help us design a cross-examination for that person? And I'd say, sure. And then it was like, well, and you know, our corporate representative, he's like really nervous. Do you think you could get help him to testify? And so it, it kind of shifted around where I was spending more time working on the case other than testifying than I was actually testifying. And so I kind of started doing just that. I said, look, I can hire, we can hire and I can prepare someone to deliver my message, and then I can help you with your problems in these other areas. And it just kind of morphed into that. And that got so busy and so demanding that I had to make a choice uh, to shut down my practice and to shut down everything else and do just the litigation consulting because it was taking more than 100% of my time. An example of something like when you were hired for the airplane crash. Explain to our audience who's hiring you and what is the goal at the end of the day that they want to accomplish 100% by having you come in? Well, you understand when an airplane crashes, you can't hit the ground and not be in violation of regulations because you have to keep an airplane a 1,000 feet above the ground. So just by the very fact that you impact the ground, you've violated a regulation, which means they almost always point to pilot error or 
um, you know, some kind of malfeasance by the operator, the air carrier itself. And um, like I was a declared pilot advocate. And so I worked as a consultant to the Airline Pilots Association in Washington, D.C. And I would go in and evaluate the pilot's behavior. We'd get the cockpit voice recorders, which give you the last 30 minutes of the flight where you can hear what was going on. You get the flight logs, the engine instrument recorders. You find out what was going on with the airplane and the pilots, who did what to when. You get all the traffic with um, chatter between the tower and approach and all of that. And, you know, somebody had to do human engineering to figure out who did what and why. Accidents don't just happen. There are accident-enabling factors. And my job was to figure out what those were, look at the human engineering side of it, and present the best possible defense given the terrible outcome. When you saw the last Denzel Washington movie, how accurate was it? Pretty accurate. I I don't know about flying an airplane upside down (laughs) like that, but I know all the investigation from NTSB and all of that. Um, it, it gets very intense and, you know, there's a lot of emotion because lives are lost and injuries and money and it's just a, a quagmire. Those things often last for years and years. Now, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, through this work that you were doing, wasn't there some kind of situation that was your first introduction to Oprah Winfrey where you were working on some kind of a case that she was involved in? Yes. Um, Oprah got sued um, by the beef industry, some representatives of the of the cattle and beef industry, um, in what came to be known as the mad cow case, the mad cow disease. And um, she was sued up in Amarillo, Texas, which is cattle country. So here you've got uh, this billionaire woman uh, sued behind enemy lines for disparaging beef. And um, so uh, I was retained uh, as part of that defense team. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to BarryCats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. I imagine a lot of people in Amarillo, Texas were not very happy with you because you had gone to school in Texas, correct? Well, here's the thing. Um, 
Oprah, a lot of people in Amarillo loved Oprah, but a lot of people up there were impacted by the cattle industry, obviously. Um, I thought it was a bogus but dangerous lawsuit from the beginning. And, I, you know, I worked with Oprah for a couple of years leading up to trial um, because we conducted mock trials, focus group research. We did all kinds of jury profiling. Um, and we were always present at trial as well. And in fact, in that case, uh, myself and lead counsel Chip Babcock, who's the premier First Amendment lawyer in the country, uh, the two of us plus Oprah and uh, a few of her key people all lived in a bed and breakfast out on the edge of Amarillo for a couple of months out there. So, I mean... You don't imagine... That somebody who's at the height of their career in television, you can't imagine how anybody like a sniper can just attack at any given time and you can't ignore it and you have to give everything you can to it. You have to give the same dedication you give to your success in business to the success in defending yourself or else one person like a sniper in war can just take everything down. Well, it was a dangerous case, and uh, although I thought it was a, a frivolous case, it was still a dangerous case. But uh, Oprah, you know, I believe the way you do anything is the way you do everything, and that's that's true of her. She um, once she said, you know, she asked me what I thought about the case from a jury standpoint, and I said I. I think you can win it, but it's dangerous. And um, she said, I've got some lawyers telling me I should settle. Certainly not Chip Babcock, but some other lawyers telling her she should settle. She said, what do you think? And I said, well, I think the line at the Sue Oprah window is going to get a whole lot shorter if you stand up and say, bullshit, I'm not paying extortion money. I didn't do anything wrong here, and I'm not paying you a dime. And... You, you fight these people to verdict, and and we did, and won, and the line at the Sue Oprah window got a lot shorter. I mean, people realized, you know, you, you're not going to get nuisance money uh, out of her. I think she did exactly the right thing. And obviously she saw, like everybody else saw uh, in the beginnings of your business when you were testifying, that you did great work, you were prepared, you had were goal-oriented, and she saw that in you, obviously, and... Was that what led to the opportunities for television? Well, we got to know each other really well because, as I say, I worked with her for two years before the trial, then during the trial. Um, and, you know, she said the night the verdict came, the day the verdict came in, we did a show that night from Amarillo that aired the next day. And um, that was the first time I was ever on the Oprah show, and it had nothing to do with anything other than the Had trial. you ever been on television on any kind of a no. show like that before? No. So your first time on television, and it's the day before the trial. Verdict so came in, and we went and did a show. After the verdict. After the verdict. I don't picture this as being a quality that you have, but were you anxious? No, not in the least. It, it was irrelevant to me. I mean, being on some daytime television show, how irrelevant was that? To, I mean, I I worked all day. I I hadn't I had never seen a episode of Oprah from start to finish in my life. I mean, I knew who she was, and then when I met her, I 
vastly understood why America was in love with her. She's charming and charismatic and intelligent and funny and all of those things. But you know what's interesting? When she met you, she saw a mirror because that's what you are. Well, she, you know, she has a, a way of seeing things and, and creating things. And, I, you know, that first night I was on her show, I mean, it was one of the kindest things anybody's ever said to me. She was introducing Chip, the lawyer, and this one, that one. And, and then she said, now I want to introduce you to Dr. Phil McGraw. This is the man that gave myself back to me because I lost myself in this process and he gave myself back to me. Wow. Which was a very kind thing to say. And then, you know, the first time she had me on the show as a guest after that, she said, you know, I've always told you, promised you that if I found things that I thought were helpful and valuable, whether it was a pair of shoes or a book or a whatever, I, I would share it with you. And, I, I found him, and I want to share him with you because at a real low spot in my life, um, he had the strength to stand up and tell me how it was when I needed to hear it, and I want him to tell you how it is just like he told me. So here he is, and off we went. So when did you know that you were going to make your mark in television and your days at CSI were numbered. It had been a few months and she called and said, um, a, a producer called from the show and said, Oprah wanted me to call you. We're doing a show about such and such and she wants you to come be the, the expert, the guest on the show. And um, I, the producer called and said that and told me when it was and I said look I really appreciate it um, but I can't do it I'm going scuba diving <laughs> and but I can give you the name of somebody that I think would do a really good job and and just you know let them do it and she kind of was real silent and said well okay <laughs> um, and then and then uh a little bit later, the phone rings again, and it's Oprah. She says, "You don't say no. What are you? What are you doing?" I said, "I'm going scuba diving." She said, "Well, how about we wait till you get back?" And I said, "Okay, we'll do that." The power of no. And, and um, she was very gracious, and I came back and went and did the show, and um, it certainly made waves. Um, it certainly made waves. Some people loved it and some people were outraged by it. It was like, what was the subject matter where they were raving and what happened to polarize it? Well, they, our very first guest was a stripper. Now that, you're talking about the first guest that you had when you that were I doing, interacted with on Oprah. Oh, okay. Got it. It was a stripper Uh huh. and it was a very nice girl, but it was a stripper and she had written in this letter, this long letter about, I want to change my life and I want to show women to have self-respect and stand up for themselves and, you know, be what God made them to be and blah, 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 and all of that. And I remember at the end of reading the letter, uh, 
a lot of the audience was crying and clapping and all of that. And Oprah said, well, so what do you think? And I said, well, I tell you what, before you save the world, how about we just get you a job where you keep your clothes on? <laughs> you know, let's just do, let's take this a step at a time. Before you save womankind, let's just see if we can get a job where you keep your pants on. And, and I'm curious, that's one of the things in that situation, like, because she's probably making probably four times more money than she would make in a job initially where she would, she would get where she kept her clothes on. Right. How did you go through that issue when she talked about that? Well, she, you know, she said she wanted to change, and but she wanted to change the world at the same time. And I said, well, okay, come on. How about we get you 30 days in a, in a job where you stay dressed, and then, then we can save womankind. And everybody's like, holy shit, what did he just say? I mean... I, um, I mean, that was just what I was thinking. I was just like, you know, if you really want to do this, don't set yourself up for failure here. You're setting up all these lofty goals. That isn't going to work. Be honest with yourself. Take care of you first. Then we'll go on. And I wasn't trying to be unkind. That was just that was just the truth of it, right? Um, and so people were like shocked. And so I come back for my second show, and the producers have told me, wow, boy, did, did you make waves? I mean, that was great. I mean, you made sparks. People are talking about it. But some people were really offended at your candor. And so I saw Oprah before the show, and I said, well, I understand a lot of people were really offended by my candor. What do you think? She said, turn up the heat. <laughs> turn up the heat. You were much easier on her than you were on me. She said, turn up the heat. I'll tell them it's okay. Don't worry about it. And so I just went on and did what I did. You know, everybody talks about, you know, the new Oprah and, um, you know, I was, she was number one forever, right? Mm -hmm. And, um, now I'm number one, and reporter was asking me one time, like, you know, Dr. Phil, what's the secret to success? You, you've been on the air so long, and then then you become number one. You know, what was the main thing that you did? And I said, what? are you kidding me? She quit. <laughs> <laughs> That's the main thing. I've been number two forever, and then she quit. And now I'm like, what do you mean, what did I do? Um, I didn't talk her out of quitting. That's what I did. What, what do you mean? I, you know, I, have, I have no illusions about that. <laughs> and that wraps up part one of our podcast. I just wanted to thank my incredible partners, starting with AquaTrue, the revolutionary miniature countertop water purification system that works straight out of the box. Plug it in, fill it with tap water, and immediately turn your faucet into your favorite bottled water for pennies. You can get $100 off when you go to industrystandardwater.com and just type in the promo code Barry and start enjoying the best water you've ever had and never buy another bottle of water again. And I Killed JFK, the groundbreaking film about the only living person who admitted to killing Kennedy. Go to IKillJFK.com, buy the film and the rare interviews with five of the last living experts, and I guarantee it'll change your mind about what happened that day. 
and the Air Doctor, the innovative portable air purification system which will change your overall quality of life. It instantly removes dust, pet hair, mold, pollen, flu viruses, and other contaminants circulating in your home. Normally $600, and if you don't believe me, check Amazon right now. But for a limited time, I can offer you 50% off. That's a $300 savings. Just go to airdoctorpro.com, type in the promo code Barry, and start breathing the cleanest and healthiest air in the world. And that wraps up part one of two episodes. You can check out the next episode this coming Thursday. And here's a preview of the next episode. When I first went into practice, I was very different. I was a young lion. I was going to save the world and stamp out disease and suffering. And if my patients didn't do well, I took it really personally. Like I didn't inspire them enough. I didn't give them enough information. But yeah, I've come to learn across time, you know, they're ultimately going to make the choices. Your kids are going to make the choices. You can raise them right, but... Like you say, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him float on his back. Thank you so much for listening, and have a great day. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get out. All the people love you Cause you're going for Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same You pick your own poison Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave... Please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.